It's amazing how God can take all these songs and scripture and tie it together uh, because all the music and even the testimonies today have been put together by God ahead of time. He can do that, you know. And uh, if you've got your Bible, I'm excited today to preach to you from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to talk to you this morning about eating at the king's table. We've been studying the life of David And now we return back to this classic story of grace from his life. But I want to begin by telling you about a couple. Elizabeth and Frank Morse had an 18-year-old son named Ted. He was home for college one Christmas break. And the pastor's family was looking for a great holiday together. And then one cold night right before Christmas... Elizabeth was growing worried because it was past midnight and the son, Ted, was not home yet. And that's when she got the news that no parent ever wants to hear about their child. The phone rang, and on the other end was the state highway patrol. Is this Miss Morris? Yes. And I'm sorry to tell you, but your son has been involved in a car accident. We need you to come down and identify the body. On Ted's drive that evening, a car coming the opposite way crossed the median and hit him head on. He died on impact. The other man who was driving, Tommy Page, he'd been to a party where he'd gotten drunk. His friends told him not to drive, but he wouldn't listen. He blacked out and he never even remembered the collision. Police said that Tommy's blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit. A month later, there the Morrises sat in a courtroom with the wounds of their son still fresh. And they were enraged because when the plea was given, Tommy said he was innocent of the charges of manslaughter. The defense lawyer is actually able to get the case delayed repeatedly. And two years from the accident, the trial closed. Tommy reached a plea deal that allowed him to be free with probation. Elizabeth Morris was shattered. There was no justice for her dead son and no way to heal her broken heart. Even though she was a pastor's wife, she began harboring rage toward Tommy and contemplated how she could get revenge. If you stay with me, I'll tell you what happened in the life of that family toward the end of the message. But I have often found that stories of amazing grace have something in common. They always begin in darkness. There's always an obstacle to overcome, a hard heart to melt, an injustice to forgive, an impossible debt to pay, a nagging shame, and broken pieces of a life that must be put back together again. That's how every grace story starts. And when it comes to understanding grace, we have to start with the bad news, don't we? Because it's the bad news that makes the good news so good. Grace stories start in the valley, not on the mountaintop. They they start in brokenness and sin and shame. And that is why we sing Amazing Grace because God starts with a mess and then He turns that into a miracle. 
And it's been said that we are never more like Christ than when we forgive and put grace on display. That's why we can understand that God said that David was a man after his own heart. Because David understood the principle of grace. And in the story recorded in 2 Samuel 9, it's one of his finest moments. And there's probably no clearer Old Testament picture of amazing grace than what David was able to give to a crippled man. Grace, it's been said, is like a sparkling diamond. And with each turn, we see how it shines. And this morning, we're going to pick up that diamond called grace, and we're going to turn it. And through this story, we're going to let God's light show us many facets of the beauty of grace. I want you to see here this morning, number one, the unexpected reach of grace. The unexpected reach of grace. Our story opens in David's royal court. He is now thinking back on how far God has brought him and all the special people that God put in his life to bring him from the pasture to the palace. Verse 1 says, 2 Samuel 9, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Proverbs 17 and 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born of adversity. That describes David's special friend, whom he's thinking about here, a man named Jonathan. Now, Jonathan's father, Saul, wanted to kill David, but in the midst of that, Jonathan stood by David as a true friend. And of course, we know that David's heart was rent in two when Jonathan tragically dies in battle with his father. Now, you'll remember that David and Jonathan were not just friends, they were blood brothers. They made a covenant with each other. In fact, if you go back to 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, we see that Jonathan pledged his allegiance to David. Verse 4 says, he stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. In other words, what Jonathan was saying to David is, all that I am, all that I have is yours, David. And this is an amazing statement because at this time, Jonathan would have been heir to Saul's throne and yet he's willingly giving all that up saying, I recognize David, the anointing of God is on you, the calling of God rests with you, and yet I will serve you as my king and as my friend. Now when you come to 1 Samuel 20, we read about their blood covenant. I want to read for you from the Message Bible, and it paraphrases that episode like this. This is Jonathan speaking. If my father still intends to kill you, I'll tell you and get you out of here in one piece. And if I make it through this alive, continue to be my covenant friend. And if I die, keep the covenant friendship with my family forever. And when God finally rids the earth of David's enemies, stay loyal to Jonathan. Jonathan repeated his pledge of love and friendship for David, for he loved David more than his own soul. 
In other words, what Jonathan says to David, David, if I die before you become king, remember me and take care of my family. Now, what's interesting is that in these times, it was common that when a king took over, that any family members who were alive of the previous dynasty would be killed off. Why? Because the incoming king who was starting a new dynasty wanted no threat of usurpers. But David is different. David walks with God. He's a man after God's own heart. And he wants to keep his word. Look at verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a, a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lo-Debar. Apparently, David wasn't aware of the man that we are about to meet. Jonathan's son was given a difficult name to pronounce, but it was a name that was loaded with meaning. Now, the text doesn't tell us his name right here. But if we go back a little bit, in 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4, we read about the man named Mephibosheth. The son of Jonathan. And that name, oh, Mephibosheth, how do you pronounce that? It's a name loaded with meaning. Because his name means the end of shame. And yet, when you read his story, he begins his life full of tragedy and pain. 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4 tells us how Mephibosheth became a cripple. The Bible says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, and he was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, she fell and became lame. He fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Apparently, the Bible is telling us that when news broke of Saul and Jonathan's death, that the royal family began to run for the hills. They feared the wrath of David because they knew the anointing and the kingship of David lay upon his shoulders, and the royal family, in retreat, ran in fear of judgment. And in their haste, the Bible says that he fell. Maybe the nurse fell on top of him. We don't know all the details, but as a result of that injury, Mephibosheth was crippled. Now, I want you to see here this morning that Mephibosheth's broken and hopeless condition is an Old Testament picture of the sinner's condition. It's a picture of you and me. But David, David is seeking after him, and he is a picture of God's grace through his son Jesus who's seeking and searching to save the lost. And this passage shows us, number one, the unexpected reach of grace. Oh, I love it, friend. How far the hand of God can reach out and grab you when you're far from Him. 
what, what does this text show us about grace? Well, I thought you'd never ask. First, I want you to see that grace finds us when we're fallen in sin. Grace finds us when we're fallen in sin. By the way, what is grace? Let's define it this way. Grace is God's unearned, undeserved favor to the least deserving. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God seeks, God surprises, and God saves. That's the heart of grace. Grace finds us when we're fallen in sin. Look at this. Mephibosheth belonged to a family who had been cursed by sin and he lived in a body that was broken. Broken by a fall. Likewise, you and I are born into the human family. It's been cursed by sin from the very beginning. And you and I live in a broken body, a sinful body, as a result of a fall, the fall of Adam. I am Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth. Romans 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Friend, I want you to see here today that grace finds us when we're unlovable. Grace finds us when we're broken. Grace finds us when we're running from God. Grace finds us when we're addicted and hopelessly lost. Don't we sing the song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me? Somebody asked an old boy, what's a wretch? A wretch is to be a blind beggar with your back broken. Hell, that's who I was. That's who you were. Oh, but grace... Oh, God's Son looked out from the balcony of heaven. Whom shall I show the kindness of my Father to? Oh, and grace reached away out there when you were fallen in sin. And then look at this. Grace finds us when we're far from God. When we're far from God. The Bible says that Mephibosheth lived in a land called Lodibar. You know what that name literally means? A place of no pasture. Lodibar was a barren wasteland. That friend, you couldn't even grow weeds in that place. It was nothing but sun and sand and serpents. Friend, it was a cursed land. It was a place where you went to run and hide. It was a place that you went to because you were on the bottom rung. You were an outcast. You had nowhere else to go. And so you went to a place that was far from Israel's king. Far from the blessings of God in Jerusalem. And friend, I want you to know, that's how you and I were at one time. The Bible says we were at one time separated from Christ. Ephesians 2 and verse 12, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood. Amen? 
Sin, oh, sin in your life, it'll make you deaf to the call of God. It'll make you blind to the blessings of God. Sin will make you numb to the presence of God when you're far away from Him, trying to get like Jonah as far as you can from God. That's why, friend, the Son has to seek us out. Because we can't get to Him. He has to come for us. That's why He seeks us. When we've wandered far from home, when we have gotten so dark and, and, and so down in sin, we forgot who we were. Oh, that's why the Savior has to come look for you and for me. And I'm thankful today that there is one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Grace finds us when we're far from God you may be sitting out there in the pew today and yes you're here physically but your heart is a million miles away you didn't even want to be here today but for some reason you're here and I'm telling you the hand of God is reaching out he's stirring your heart he's trying to get your attention and show you I love you I got mercy for you I got hope and a new life for you God's grace Oh, it sees us from afar when we're in such dark dungeon of sin. We can't see our hand in front of our face. God can see through it. God can reach us. God can get to us when our mama can't reach us. When our daddy's prayers have ceased. When the church can't find us and we've forgotten the preacher's sermon. I'm thankful that there's a God of grace who sees us when we're far off. And reaches for us. Notice my friend that grace finds us when we're falling in sin. Grace finds us when we're far from God. And then grace finds us when we're fearful of judgment. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have thought when David's messengers arrived at his little shanty shack? The door was open. Who's there? We're emissaries from David, the king of Jerusalem. Oh, God. He's found me. He knows who I am and where I live. You see, all that Mephibosheth knew about David was from presumably what his nurse had told him. What his surrogate mother had said about him. Why he, they had to flee and, and why he was crippled. Everything he knew about the king was a false impression. And it was based on fear. What about that long wagon ride to Jerusalem, Brother Clifford? They loaded Mephibosheth up in the wagon. And they hauled him from Lodibar into Jerusalem. Oh, every bump of the road, every mile got harder and longer because he's sweating bullets. He thinks they found me. He's caught me. They're taking me to the palace. And judgment awaits me. He knows whose son I am. He knows my family name. He's going to put me to death. And so a death sentence hung over this man Mephibosheth. Now let me pause right here and say it is right for sinners to fear God. How many of you know that when you ran from God and you resisted Him think back you ran from God and you hid from God and you resisted God why? Because you really didn't know His heart. Everything you've been told about God 
was a fear-based false impression. Everything you thought you knew about God, you learned from watching those hypocritical Christians down there at the Baptist church live two different ways, one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week. You thought you had God figured out because you watched some video on YouTube and you, you thought, oh, the God of the Bible, He's not real. He can't be trusted. Uh, all the smart people, the intellectuals and the scientists, uh, they don't believe in God. And, and, and who would want to believe a God of judgment, a God of wrath? Who would want to believe in a God who would send His Son to the cross? That's barbaric. That's primitive. Everything you think you knew about God was based on a myth. That's who Mephibosheth was. And friend, when you're running from God, when you're hiding from God, it's easy to believe in a straw man counterfeit version of God. Because you don't want to be found. You don't want to change. You don't want to encounter the cross and grace and have to deal with this ugly heart that's full of wretched sinfulness. You see, I've said it before, there's really no such thing as an atheist. Because you're going to worship something. You're either going to worship the true and living God or you're going to worship an idol that you have created yourself to keep you at arm's distance from the real God who sees through you, knows your motives and actions. And if you really knew the God of the Bible, you'd give up the fight. You'd come to Him because <laughs> He's a God of grace. How many of you know that when God first seeks out the sinner, it's not a pleasant experience? See, preachers quit preaching on this stuff, folks. Preachers quit preaching a long time ago on a little word called conviction. That's when the Word of God cuts straight through your excuses, straight through your mindset, through every mirage and false impression you've put up and shows you who you really are. Preachers quit preaching on it, but I'm not one of them. I'm talking about Holy Spirit conviction, such that when the Bible is open and it's preached authoritatively, anointed by the Spirit of God, you can't run and you can't hide because God has got you pinned down. I believe in the blessing. Yes, I said blessing of Holy Spirit conviction. That when you come under the true preaching of the Word of God, oh, it'll put a quiver in your liver. It'll, it'll make you think twice about how you're living, about how you're running, and the path that you're on. You see, it's not a, it's not a pleasant thing when the Holy Spirit knocks at the door of your heart and says, I'm after you. There's grace hitting nipping at your heels. You can run. You can hide. But I know where you sleep. I know where you live. I know your address. I'll find you. See, friend, I'm one of them old-fashioned preachers that still believes in Holy Ghost conviction because that's the kind of preaching that saved this old boy right here. That preached that heaven was sweet and that hell was hot and that God was a God of love but also a God of wrath and justice and that I had better begin to see things His way or yet He would give me my way and I'd end up with my back broke in hell. You see, the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven. He arrests us. He finds us. Hiding in the pew, hiding in a religious shell, thinking we've got everybody deceived. They think I'm a good Baptist. I'm a good Christian. 
But Holy Spirit conviction, when it falls on you, oh, you buckle at your knees. You fall in an old-fashioned altar with true tears of repentance. And friend, I'm thankful for the blessing of Holy Spirit conviction. For without it, none of us can be saved. Somebody said that conviction is the hammer of God's Spirit ringing on the anvil of the human heart and every blow says death, hell, death, hell, death, hell. They knocked on Mephibosheth's door. We're here to take you to the king. Oh my God, this is it. He lived under the fear of judgment. The longest ride of his life. Oh, but friend... That's the, that's the master. That's the Son of God, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. I wasn't seeking after God. You weren't seeking after God. And so you were lame. You were broken. You were far from God, friend, until God reached way down. How far did he have to reach down to grab you, Brother Stan? How much in darkness were you when he came knocking on your door and says, Excuse me, you have an audience with the king. Let me tell you this morning about Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was the most hopeless drunk in the city of Chicago. And that's saying something. He was walking by a shelter one day. His son, two years old, had just died. He swore on his son's grave that he would never drink again. Just hours after his son's funeral, he was passed out in the saloon. The bar owner kicked him out. He said, my son's dead. My wife's going to leave me. I'm bankrupt. I can't hold a job. I might as well go down here to Lake Michigan and throw myself in the icy water. So on his way to the waterfront, he passed by a little building called the Pacific Garden Mission. It's still there today. They have a radio program called Unshackled. My daddy used to turn it on for me on Saturday mornings, and we used to listen to Unshackled. He was walking by that little mission, and, and inside he could hear. He could hear as he was passing by all the hobos and derelicts inside singing, Amazing. Zing grace, how sweet the sound. As he walked by, he said it was like God threw a lasso out from heaven and wrangled his heart and pulled him and motivated him and directed him into that little mission. He said the rest is history. That night, January 19th, 1897, I, Mel Trotter, heard the gospel. I was gloriously saved. And in an instant, after I rose from the altar, God had taken the taste of liquor from my lips. And he made it his life mission from then on out to build these little missions in every city where he could get to because I, he had been saved by grace in a little out-of-the-way place. And he said, if we could put these in every city across the United States, there's no telling whom God might reach. Friend, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how dark your pit is, no matter how checkered your past is, I'm telling you that God is reaching, that Christ never gives up, that the Holy Spirit never stops calling. 
I love what Max Licato wrote. He said, quote, We've settled for a wimpy grace. It politely occupies a phrase in a hymn that fits nicely on a church sign. Never causes or demands a response. But the amazing grace we read of in the Bible isn't tame. God's grace has a wildness about it. It snatches you up by the nape of the neck, shakes you to your senses like a white water riptide. It powerfully turns life upside down. Grace after you and woos you. Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. Once you encounter it, you'll never be the same. That's the unexpected reach of grace that reached way out and said, go get Mephibosheth and bring him into my court. Number two, I want you to see here today. Hey, just forget about it. We ain't going to finish on time. Number two, I want you to see the unmerited riches of grace. I've already worked up a sweat anyway, and I'm going to get my sermon out of it. When Mephibosheth finally arrives at David's throne room, he gets the surprise of his life. He found out that David didn't bring him there for condemnation, but for restoration. Look what verse 6 says. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Behold, I am your servant. Verse 7, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore unto you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and his house I have given to your master's grandson. Oh, my God, the unmerited riches of grace. This passage right here shows us amazing things about the riches of grace. First off, notice this. Grace offers us the friendship of God. Or you could say the favor of God. Did you see what verse 7 said? Look at it again. Do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. The heart of God is kindness and love and mercy and grace. Mephibosheth thought that David was his enemy, but David offered him friendship. That the God of the universe might look down and offer you friendship oh that you might walk with him and that you might know his ways and that you might learn of his character Mephibosheth was accepted by David because of his covenant with Jonathan and even so God the Father shows us mercy and kindness because of the covenant that he has with his son Romans 5 1 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God Hello, peace with God. I used to be a rebel, used to be a hater, used to be a blasphemer. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to be a child of God. But something changed in my life. It's called grace. And God said, I'm not your enemy. I want to bless you. 
Friends, that's a surprise of grace. Oh, God, if we could see it today. The unexpected, undeserved grace of God. Instead of judgment, we get mercy. Instead of shame, He gives us a second chance. Instead of captivity, He says, you get freedom. Instead of hell, it's heaven. There is nothing more shocking to the world than the scandal of amazing grace because it takes all of our expectation and flips over the apple cart and says, you thought you knew who I was, but let me show you something about grace. Oh, God, He did it for me. Oh, to offer me a wretch the friendship of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to say His name. And He calls me His own. Oh God. David Jeremiah said, quote, Grace is the delivery of a jewel that nobody thought existed. A burst of light into a room where everybody forgot it was dark. Grace turns human politics on its head right before our eyes. It overturns our moral apple cart. The discovery of grace is like finding a knothole in the high walls of heaven. We can't tear ourselves away from it. Oh, friend. Some of you tell me, I didn't want church to end that day. You know why? That's the sweetness of God's presence. When God brings you in and says, You're my friend. Let me show you favor. No wonder you don't want to leave. Grace offers the favor of God. Grace gives us the fortune of God. Notice what verse 7 says again. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall sit at my table always. Mephibosheth goes from being a beggar to being a millionaire in a single day. And no, he didn't play the Powerball either. David restored to him all the land and the wealth from his father and his grandfather. And in the same way, old friend, when you come to Christ, the Bible says that you become a co-heir with Jesus Christ. All the riches of heaven, all the blessings of salvation get transferred from the kingdom of heaven, from the bank account of the Son into your paltry, beggarly little account. And you receive the riches of grace. And by the way, it don't ever run out. He said to Mephibosheth, you can always sit at my table and eat my bread. That's Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So, verse 7, that in the coming ages He might show you the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, friend, it never gets old. It never grows stale. I never get bored preaching on the grace and the goodness of God. I heard a story about old Charles Spurgeon. A wealthy man came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, God's been very good to me. I want to give you a hundred pounds. That's the British denomination... I'm going to give you a hundred pounds, a hundred dollars. He said, I'm sure you know some poor, pitiful preachers out there who are just barely scraping by. 
I'm going to give you this hundred pounds, and I want you to disperse this to a pastor, to a group of preachers that are really struggling, and I want you to help them out. And don't tell them where it came from. So immediately Mr. Spurgeon thought of a faithful pastor who served out in the countryside. He was barely able to make ends meet. Him and his wife and kids, I mean, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Spurgeon wrote him a, a note, mailed it to him, put five pounds in there, and all it said on the outside, uh, or excuse me, on the inside of the letter when he opened it up, the five-pound note dropped out and it said, More to come. A few weeks went by. The preacher was again in hard times. Money was running low. Where are we going to get something to eat? Another letter arrived in the mailbox. He opened it up. A five note fell out. And then it read, more to come. A couple more weeks went by. Same pattern. Things are getting dry. Things are getting dark. How are we going to meet our bills? How are we going to feed our kids? How are we going to uh, give them food and clothing? He opened up his mailbox. There was a note. It fell out. It said the same thing. More to come. And friend, that's the only way I can describe the grace of God in my life and your life. Just when it's too late, just when I think I've reached the extreme and the limit and God can't meet my need or, or God can't save me or God can't do another miracle or maybe God won't answer another prayer. Oh, something falls out of heaven into my lap and I open it up and it says more to come. That's the inexhaustible grace of God. It never runs out. He just keeps blessing. Lesson. My cup run is over, and I pick up the saucer and let me drink from that. Oh God, more to come. Spurgeon later described that constant flow of grace like this. Imagine that a field mouse living in Egypt during Joseph's seven years of plenty fear dying of famine. Then imagine that mouse falling into those vast granaries that Joseph had prepared and hearing him say, Cheer up, little mouse. My storehouses are sufficient for thee. There's more to follow. Friend, there's no expiration on the grace of God. It doesn't run out. It doesn't reach a limit. It doesn't run dry. He told Mephibosheth, he said, For as long as you live, you belly up to my table. You have bread. That's the grace of God. And then I want you to see this. Grace not only gives us the riches or the fortune of God and the favor of God, but grace adopts us into the family of God. It adopts us into the family of God. Verse 7, and you shall eat at my table always. You know, three times in this passage, it says that over and over and over again. Verse 11, it adds this little phrase. Look at verse 11. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, watch it church, like one of the king's sons. Oh, ho, 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 ho. that's shouting ground right there. When I read that, I'd read that story a hundred times and never noticed that. But just this week when I saw it in my study, I had to sit up and say, thank you, God, for a grace gem that you just dropped in my lap. You're not just saved, not just the inheritance of a, of a great wealth, you belong to the forever family of God. That's grace. Galatians 4. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son and if an heir through God. Think about this picture. (laughs) Think about this. David's royal dining room. Ding, 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 ding. The dinner bell rings. Call me anything you want, just don't call me late. The dinner bell rings. In come David's children to sit at the table. Delicious food is prepared. Here comes Amnon. He's clever and witty. He's got jokes. Then comes Joab. That's David's nephew. He's a trusted general. I mean, he's a man's man. He's muscular. He's hairy-chested. He's a military man. Then comes Absalom. I mean, Absalom is GQ magazine from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He's Fabio. He is fine. He's got perfect hair. He's got bronze skin. He struts into the dining room and he takes his place. And then here comes Tamar. That's David's daughter. Oh, she's beautiful. She's arrayed like a princess. Here comes straggling in old Solomon. He's been in the library all day. He's the intellectual. They're sitting down at the table. David's family is there, but there's one spot still open. They sit there in silence, and they can hear it come down the hallway. A a cane is tapping down the hallway. In comes the cripple. They bring him in. He's last at the table. They sit him down at the right hand of David. He's one of David's sons. He looks at everybody else and says, What are you waiting for? Pass me the biscuits, man. That's the grace of God. Oh, brother, stand. Sometimes I feel like it. I'm the last one at the table. Oh, but I get there and God says, Oh, we hadn't run out yet. There's still a place for you. You shall always dwell uh, in my house, eating under my table because you're one of mine. I sought you. I brought you. I bought you. And I brought you into my family. You're mine. The devil can't take it from you. you got my grace. And there's always a place for you at my table. Oh, God. I know how I made it. (laughs) The old quartet used to sing, didn't they, Brother Clifford? I know how I made it. I made it by grace. Every grace story starts with a mess and ends in a miracle. Remember that distraught family, Elizabeth and Frank Morris? Son killed. Drunk driver set free. You know what happened? Grace happened. Elizabeth hated Tommy Page, the kid driving the other car, for acting so foolishly and taking the life of her son. But she had been a recipient of God's grace. She gave her pain to God, and the Lord spoke to her in her prayer and said this, My daughter Elizabeth, my son was killed for your sin. I have forgiven you. Now you must forgive that young man. Elizabeth knew what she had to do. So she tracked down Tommy, who actually ended up in jail for violating again. 
After talking with him, she found out about his troubled childhood, his broken family, his alcohol addiction, and finally she found the courage to forgive the man who killed her son. Upon his release, Tommy started attending church with the Morris family. They talked with him about Christ, and it wasn't long till he gave his life to Jesus. Of all places where, sitting at the family dinner table. And one of the proudest days of their life was when Frank the dad got to baptize his son's killer and testify of the amazing grace of God. And now today, the story says that Tommy goes every Sunday to the preacher's house and eats at his table. That's the grace of God. And that's what Jesus has done for you and done for me. Can we have our musicians come? Can we sing something about grace today?